Welcome to the analysis.news podcast. I'm Paul Jay. As the protests continue across the United States, broaden, deepen, and even more sections of the population get involved, including people who have never protested or rallied about anything. The question is, can this movement be sustained? What kind of leadership is emerging? What are the demands of the movement? What should be the demands of the movement? Now joining us to talk about all of this is Adrian Dixon. She's a scholar of race and gender equity and urban educational context. She's an author of over 30 scholarly journal articles and book chapters and editor of five books on critical race theory and education. She's also a trained musician with an undergraduate degree in music theory and composition, and she lives in Illinois and in New Orleans. She goes back and forth. Uh, thanks for joining us, Adrian. Thank you for having me. So first of all, give us a sense of what the protest movement has been like in, uh, I don't know if people are calling it the Black Lives Matter movement or not, but uh, what's it been like in New Orleans? Um, I'd say folks have been fairly active. Um, I have not been out at the protests. I've actually been on self-quarantine for a couple of weeks um, because of some travel that I've been doing. Um, I live close to where they've um, come up uh, and have protested a couple of times. They've covered a lot of geography in the city. Um, and uh, it looks like a coalition of groups. Um, so there was a group that was fairly active called Takedown. Um, take them down New Orleans, um, and they led the charge to remove the Confederate monuments. Um, I was watching some video on, uh, I don't even know the days of the week. I joke and tell people every day is Saturday or Sunday. Um, so it may have been Friday night. I think um, there was a um, convening of folks outside um, downtown somewhere, and uh, the take them down NOLA folks were um kind of trying to corral folks and um, organize people, ensure that folks are staying safe. I I don't know that we have a chapter of Black Lives Matter in New Orleans, but I know that we, again, have a coalition of groups. And folks have been, you know, they've been really active. They've taken over the highway. Um, so they're, the, the protests have gone on the I-10. Um, they attempted to cross the Crescent City Connection, which is the the, uh, the bridge that crosses from the east bank of New Orleans to the west bank. Um, they were blocked um, by the police and, and met some aggression on the part of the police with tear gas and, and whatnot, which is very scary because folks are actually on the bridge um, <laughs> that is suspended over the Mississippi River. All right, folks, it looks like we got interrupted a minute ago. Uh, a tear gas canister was thrown uh, close to where we are. Uh, as you can see, there is a small no man's land dividing line between NOPD officers on your right uh, and protesters, uh, several hundred, uh, perhaps thousands on the left, uh, shouting, don't shoot, don't shoot. So the situation escalated to its current uh, standoff a few minutes ago when NOPD attempted to push the protesters back off of the Crescent City Connection. I've seen um, um, information posted on Instagram and uh, Facebook and Twitter about when uh, folks are con are convening, um, and it's been almost every day. Um, I think yesterday they met at noon 
but most days they meet after six o'clock in March. The um, demands that are being made, the kind of slogans in, in when people are on the streets and generally, um, what are they? So I've heard various things. Um, I've heard people asking to defund the police department. Um, I just I, saw a news story just went by. Bill de Blasio in New York apparently just decided to reduce funding of the police department and put it into social services. And yeah. Yeah. Um, so I've heard that I've heard, um, clearly people want more accountability, um, for police. Um, they want, and by accountability, they want oversight. Um, so a community oversight board, um, we have a version of that. Um, I don't, honestly know how active it is. I know it exists because I've seen um, within city government, there is kind of a New Orleans um, kind of police something. I think it actually is a result of the um, consent decree. New Orleans was under a consent decree and um, um, uh, with the Justice Department. And uh, so I've seen that. I've seen um, uh, certainly demands for the police officers in Minneapolis to be held accountable. Um, and um, I think that uh, some folks have been sophisticated enough to say that, they, that charges aren't enough, that there has to be a conviction, conviction and then a meaningful kind of um, uh, sentence uh, for the, the murder of George Floyd. Um, folks have asked for kind of a full-scale reform of um, prisons um, and sentencing. Um, so it, it you know, and, and there are, I, I've seen um, abolition, uh, abolition groups just calling for us to kind of completely rehaul and reform our entire criminal justice system. So um, it's been um, kind of a myriad of, of um, requests. The, the underlying issue here uh, is, as far as I can see, both in terms of what I saw in Baltimore and I think it's in, in a sense kind of obvious, which is the chronic poverty and underemployment of so many people of color and particularly African-Americans. Uh, the, uh, the pool, this enormous pool of cheap labor mm-hmm. is really at the heart of why there's systemic racism. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. uh, if there was some war or some emergency, uh, tomorrow, yeah. uh, you know, the black, black workers would all of a sudden have real yes. jobs. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, most black workers actually do have jobs. They're just mm-hmm. paid towards minimum they just wage. Don't pay well. Yeah. 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 They're paid terribly. And yeah. And you know, the, and racism, uh, racist ideology is the justification for all of yeah. this. Is there a sense of that in the pro and amongst these protests that there needs to be demands that go to the economic heart of the problem? Mm-hmm. It does seem to be, um, and that's uh, that's the kind of when I was saying there were kind of myriad requests. I think that I've I've seen people at least here in New Orleans, um, the protests of. Uh, folks talking about kind of affordability, um, talking about um, uh, livable wages. Um, folks have been really animated around the tourism economy and um, that, uh, you know, that New Orleans is almost a place that services outsiders and it doesn't service its citizens. So there's been, um, and, and that has been building Um before the the protests um, around Mr. Floyd's death, that has been building. Um, in fact, um, 
uh, at least a month or so before his death, uh, right when we went into shutdown mode and the economy in New Orleans was impacted by the the shutdown um, of the stay-at-home orders, there were uh, workers were organizing or trying to organize to get some sort of fund to support um, people who service the you know the tourism economy. So you have restaurant workers, you have hotel workers, um, and that's cooks and waitresses or waitstaff, um, janitorial staff, folk who are completely displaced when the um, tourism economy. Um, tanks and that New Orleans um, before Katrina, but certainly full-blown um, when Katrina, after Katrina, kind of shifted its its focus to tourism um, and servicing a, um, a population of folk who don't live in New Orleans on a kind of quasi-permanent basis. So you have the Airbnbs, where you have a lot of outside owners um, who, again, are servicing servicing short-term to medium-term renters. Um, There was a lot of energy to support the film industry. Um, And so people were organizing um, to uh, force the Convention Bureau, which is a separate entity, um, to um, who, who they get tax um, support, but they are a separate entity to force them to um, kind of share the wealth, if you will, that they that they had a surplus. They didn't have a surplus, but they certainly had funds. And rather than put in um, a to to build a uh, to rehab the convention center and build a hotel and a whole entertainment industry to use that fund to to pay, you know, people who, who support the, um, the tourism industry, the workers. Um, and there was a lot of contention around that. Um, and, a and a lot of unwillingness on the part of the convention bureau folks to, to kind of share, um, their, their funding that is not private funding. It's all public funding, um, by, uh, tax dollars that are, you know, in Louisiana, New Orleanians pay a hefty tax price. So not only it's almost like we're, you know, doubly taxed. So whatever, uh, when groups come in, there is a state tax and a city tax, and then the we recoup a very uh, small percentage of those state taxes. And yet, um, you know, uh, when I go to the store to um, buy things, a portion of my tax goes back to the city. And then, you know, so I mean, goes back to the state. So um, New Orleanians were asking just for their fair share. And that as a convention bureau, you know, enjoys these kind of extra tax dollars that they then, you know, fund their workers, fund the people who support what they do. And there was just an unwillingness. And that, and then we have the George uh, Floyd um, protest. So I think there has always been, at least in New Orleans, some concern in large part because um, African Americans and uh, Latinos are are disproportionately represented in the tourism industry here in New Orleans. And so, and in many ways, is is always going to be an issue about race um, uh, and an issue about race and class. This video of, of George Floyd being essentially mm-hmm. murdered, mm-hmm. it's not the first one. Uh, no. There's been other videos, some of them as overt as this one, but there's never been a response like this. Um, mm-hmm. And the, uh, do you think this pandemic moment is creating a different atmosphere that helped give rise to this and how is it that so many young people are willing to risk getting the the COVID-19 
these a lot of these kids, and that's not all kids by any means. There's a lot of adults mm-hmm. out too, but a lot of young people, very close together and, and at risk of getting the illness. And yet they're saying this is too important not to go out anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I think one, and I do want to say that um, I want us to remember that Brianna Taylor was murdered in her home. Um, I think right before um, George Floyd's death. So they were, you know, not even um, a month apart. Um, And she was just as blameless, right? In her own um, death, she was literally at home asleep in a no-knock warrant um, and and was murdered, right? So um, I think it's the kind of um, confluence of of issues um, that uh, that young folks are responding to. Um, we didn't see Breonna Taylor's murder. We certainly knew about Breonna Taylor's murder, but, but we could see literally the life leaving George Floyd's body. And I think um, that for any of that could have been anybody, right? It could have been anyone in a nice place like Minneapolis, right? Minnesota, the Minnesota nice. In a nice place like Minneapolis, this too could happen to to you or anybody you know. And I think um, that, uh, that, you know, young folks are uh, just, yeah, that this is, this is an issue that we, um, we have to capitalize on now. The the truth is too, also they're not in school. So they have the time. I mean, just the pragmatics of it. Um, When he died, they may not, that, you know, they may have been away um, and in school, but they're home. Right. Um, and uh, so they have the time to do this. Um, and I think they, that for young people, you know, again, uh, the young people who are out now, they've, they've lived through multiple deaths. John Crawford in, um, in Dayton, Tamir Rice in Cleveland, Tavon Martin um, in uh, Florida. All of them are their age peers. These are all that they could, um, you know, see as their peers who have been killed for no other reason than just being mistaken for a criminal because of the color of their skin. And so I think the enormity of the the moment, um, you know, we could, that it's just has over has overtaken them. And I, I really apl- applaud as a professor, you know, I really applaud when students become, um, uh, politically active because I it, it just encourages me that um, that we won't that folk won't just sit and allow this to happen. They've always been they've all, this particular generation has also been kind of overcome with neoliberalism, right? The kind of um, shifting of the responsibility of the state, and here you see the state, uh, you know, sniffing the life out of someone um, for no. Um, for no, you know, no reason. And I think um, I'm, I'm happy to see them kind of rise up and, and organize um, as much as they can. In Baltimore, when the protests began and really thousands of people came into the streets. Um, there was a very big contingent of white students that joined mm-hmm. in. In fact, some of the biggest of the rallies, there, there were often more white students than black. Yeah. And that's in a city that's majority black by a, yeah. large, by a long, by yeah. a lot. 
Um, and there's a lot of, apparently, a lot of white students and young sure. people joining right across the country now. Yeah. Um, in Baltimore, there was always a kind of weird tension yeah. between how does this get organized? Yeah. Because you had some of the black groups saying, well, whites should just be allies. Mm -hmm. And you even had some uh, in the black group saying they didn't want some of the white students there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there was a very strange tension because nobody was yeah. actually building a broad front. Right. That would include the white students. Like I was yeah. arguing with some of the yeah. black activists. I said, yeah. you need to build a broad front. And yeah. yeah, black youth should lead it. Yeah. But not in some exclusive way. Right. And, and, and I think it's one of the reasons things petered out there. Yeah. I think, you know, honestly, and I think that we don't know how to resist power. You know, I, I, you know, so many of us, I'm a, you know, I was born in 1968. So I was born, uh, uh, three or four months before Dr. King died. Um, my father just recently passed away um, in April, as a matter of fact. And I, I did not know this about my dad. I mean, he talked about this, but I didn't know that he actually um, integrated his high school or desegregated his high school. He didn't integrate. He desegregated his high school. Um, and uh, he was active in a civil rights movement. He lived in, in Los Angeles. He grew up in Los Angeles um, that, that had multiple strategies to desegregate um, the schools in Los Angeles. And the irony of that, my dad lived in this. This happened in the 60s. This is after the Brown decision. And the irony is that my grandmother left New Orleans um, to go to the West. She was the second wave of, of migrants to leave the South and go and look for, um, for freedom, right? And so here you go from the segregated South in Louisiana, my grandmother left in the 40s, moved to New Orleans and certainly was able to um, move to um, Los Angeles and was certainly able to make a better life for herself in Los Angeles than she did in New Orleans. But yet, um, and my dad was her only son. She had three kids. He was the middle. Um, and yet her son in the 1960s had to desegregate his high school. Um, and uh, I, I, I think a lot of our kind of from my generation on, my dad thought, and, and I think he understood this, certainly he understood it later, we would debate this, but that the biggest fight was just getting access, right? And that once he, because he had lived in an era where they, it was literally, you can't come in, right? You're not, you are not welcome. Um, and you and and he had to fight his way in, and um, that that was the fight. And I think that we didn't learn, and I by we I mean my generation, we didn't necessarily learn. Um, and where would you learn how to organize? It was such a disruption. The civil rights movement and the demands that Black folks and and then and young whites who participated, the demands that they were making was such a disruption to the 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 very fabric of what the U.S. kind of had premised itself on um, that uh, and it was it was violent. And I, I think people were so pained by that, that we just don't know how to organize other than in this violent way, which is why you hear people say we want peaceful protests, which almost is a, you know, not almost, it is an oxymoron, right? So we have, you know, we know that change didn't come with these kind of peaceful protests. It was violent. It was dangerous. It was radical. Um, and we just, um, we don't know how to enact change uh, and 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 that we weren't we being again my generation we didn't learn how to do anything differently and so um, 
I think that there is an ignorance in some ways. Certainly there are people who are very skilled at organizing and I know um, really smart organizers. It's a, it's a, it's a, a, a longer arc and it can't be reactionary. You know, it has to be intentional. And um, I think sadly that many Americans uh, and 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 most kind of mainstream, just regular people trying to live their lives. We don't know how to how to think proactively about things, um, and so our our activism is reactionary and not um, again planned and intentional. Um, and so I, I just think for young folks now is where would they have learned this? I wrote a piece about this about where would they have learned this? I was a sixth grade teacher. Um, and I know that we didn't, within the context of our curriculum, um, and this is true across the U.S., that we don't talk about organizing. We talk about the civil rights movement as something that happened and then it was over and there was nothing to do after that. Um, and and so young people only know that there were marches and that marches lead to change. And in fact, that isn't true, right? The march didn't lead to the change. It was the organizing and the kind of political um, uh, education and maneuvering that, that folks have done. And, and, and certainly we have not gotten where we need to go there. That's a whole nother conversation. But I just think young people, um, it, it, it is an it is an ignorance. In, and I and the piece that I wrote about um, the Black Lives Matter piece is that at, from as an education apparatus that we have failed young people because we haven't talked smartly about what it means to engage in political education and in meaningful organizing um, to affect um uh, substantive um, social change and, and equality. This is what, why it seems to me what's needed is a very broad front that participates and helps lead and make more conscious the movement that's in the streets, but also organizing towards elect, an electoral strategy. Sure. Because <laughs> if you're just making demands, even the most modest demands, sure. They kind of don't go anywhere because these elites, they don't really think they have to do much of anything right now yep. in this moment yep. because of the pandemic. Yep. Yeah, maybe you'll get like I was saying, Bill de Blasio might reduce the police budget a little bit. Right. But, but the basic dynamics of who has power and what they do with it isn't going to change unless you start electing people with a completely different political agenda. But there seems to be kind of two worlds here, the sort of the movement that happens in the streets and then others. Some people are involved in electoral politics, but there seems to be this wall between the two of them. Yeah, there is a wall between. And I, I, in some, I mean, I think that um, at least when I think about the kind of K twelve piece, because I, I, so I think it's hard to do education, political education, in this moment while people are organizing, um, or while while people are out in the streets, um, and. Uh, for a host of reasons. It's just logistically difficult to do that. I think that there are forces, um, and, and, I, and I don't want to sound conspiratorial. Uh, I just saw a tweet where someone said, what kind of world do we live in where Angela Davis is still alive, but we're taking, um, we're listening to uh, DeRay McKesson and Sean King. Um, and, uh, and this is, uh, you know, I mean, again, yeah. So we, we, how can we educate folks when there are kind of competing 
uh, agendas and ideologies at play. And we have so demonized um, uh, groups. Um, uh, the Black Panther Party has been so demonized and the, you know, people are ignorant about what socialism is um, that uh, how can how can we engage in kind of a simultaneous protest and education project when we have such profound ignorance around just basic ideas and history, right? Um, so I think I mean I think though you know that's the that's the biggest challenge um, for us at this particular you know at this particular moment, which makes me you know sad. But we have, I mean the state of Texas has rewritten their their social studies curriculum um, to where you can't even talk about um, Thomas Jefferson, who was so benign, right? (laughs) I mean, not benign, but I mean, I didn't see that. Really? Why why can't you talk about? Um, Because he didn't overtly say anything about the U S being a Christian nation. Um, And uh, so therefore, um, you know, they, 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 Chris, the, the state of Texas has kind of in some ways, um, the the they don't overtly mention um, Thomas Jefferson in the founding of the U.S. It's it's bizarre, um, but I say that to say this again. These are the kind of crazy kind of ideologies that we have at play right now, and so trying to engage in a political education is difficult when we have such profound ignorance around just basic ideas. You can see in the, there's an interesting thing happening here, which is there's a kind of sympathy for the protests in mainstream media, uh, even to a large extent, some of the politics, Democratic Party politics in particular, that not, we've never seen before, I don't think. And it's kind of this movement is happening at a time where the force, the anti-Trump forces think they can use this movement to help weaken Trump. And then the Democratic Party always tries to take this kind of motion and then steer it towards uh, electoral support for the Democratic Party. Um, And it's going to be another one of these elections where I don't see how people have much of a choice but to vote for Biden because Trump is a kind of neo-fascist and a Mussolini kind of character. Um, All the more reason why there needs to be a, a broad organization that can help people on, you know, balance this. Yeah. Maybe you have to vote for Biden to get rid of Trump, but don't have any illusions about who Biden is and who the democratic party is. I I completely agree with you. And again, that's what I'm saying. I mean, this this kind of education piece is, um, the education piece is part of it, but it is competing ideologies and, and that I think are intentional. And this is going to sound conspiratorial and that's okay. I'll take it. Um, that, you know, I'm, I'm disappointed. I watch, I mean, you know, when you watch regular news, um, MSNBC and CNN and the kind of, um, protectionism around Biden. And, and in part, I'm, I'm guessing it's because the, you know, the Democrats are really afraid that if we do any, if we engage in any kind of critique that people won't vote. And so there's just this willingness to be kind of, um, uh, treat him with kid gloves. And so we don't have any real, you know, critical kind of conversation about the state of our politics now we can't engage so it seems as if you know we we can't have a critical conversation and also still vote for biden because why the hell will we want trump back right you know so yes we can be critical of biden but there's 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 a lot of concern about if we are critical then people won't vote um 
And that makes me, you know, that's uh, it's depressing that that's the state of our kind of political discourse and rhetoric right now. So where do you think this movement heads? Uh, I'll go back to the beginning. Can it be sustained? Is is a leadership going to emerge or is it emerging that, that can take it next steps so it, it doesn't just get diffuse? I think so. I think that this moment will pass. I, I just think it's not sustainable. Um, in our current kind of political moment, but I but I do believe that people will be intentional about organizing um, and um, thoughtful about, about about organizing people. I think there are a lot of smart people who are skilled organizers and um, uh, and are working um, to kind of uh, build on the momentum. But I think that. Um, n- I think good organizers are not looking for notoriety or to be out in front because that kind of defeats the purpose. Right. (laughs) Um, And so the organizing again is a longer arc than uh, kind of this moment of being out in front and leading people. And, um, and so the smart organizing I think happens underground and will, you know, continue to happen underground until we have kind of a critical mass. And I, I do think that that is happening. I think that's important. Um, and it's okay if this moment passes because what we have been able to do is kind of organize and see um, what people are to that we've in some ways have been able to introduce a class critique um, into the organizing that didn't happen necessarily with Freddie Gray, right? So mm-hmm. I think the promise of of this happening during COVID-19 is that people are aware of the poverty, right? They are aware of um, just it, it, how vulnerable we are to the market, Um and that there are alternatives to the market because folks are having to try to figure all that out. Um, so I think in some ways that's the promise of this moment is that we can talk about the intersections of race, class, and gender um, in more substantive ways than we have in previous um, moments um, because they have been hijacked by um, a neoliberal the kind of neoliberal democratic apparatus um, and Democrat with a, a big D. Um, and and I, I think that in some ways, you know, that that has been thwart. It's pushing the, the big D Democrats to have to talk more overtly about class. I just think they don't have it in them to do anything meaningful. And I do think they'll be held accountable um, because young folks are now feeling it, right? I'm a professor at a university. Um and uh, there's certainly been a faction of young people who have asked for money because asked for refunds because they are privileged. But there have been, you know, real economic hardships um, for students who, you know, paid fees and were in the dorm and they didn't have anywhere to go. And uh, universities had to come up, you know, with a way to support these young, you know, these students. And that was on a kind of national stage. Um, so I so I think there is a more substantive discussion about, again, the intersections of, of race, class, and gender that previous um, moments haven't afforded us. And I don't think we can go back. I do think smart organizers will know how to capture this moment. I'm not an organizer. I just kind of observe stuff and, and um, 
try to document, but I do think smart people, smarter than I, in, in terms of the political organizing, are um, capitalizing on this. And, I, and so I do feel hopeful in that regard. Well, that's good. Thanks very much, Adrian. Thank you for having me. And thank you for joining us on the analysis.news podcast. <laughs>